you know, in the ICU, we have lots of hypotheses about what's happening with patients uh, from a pathophysiology perspective. And so almost every treatment change in the ICU is a hypothesis test. And so like the ventilator change, you need to stick around to see the results and follow up the results. Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper. In this podcast, we interview leaders and expert clinicians in critical care. We ask them to share their insights about relevant critical care topics. And for today, we go to Boston to discuss low tidal volume ventilation in ARDS. You know, for ARDS, we need to think about ARDS in patients with respiratory distress because we can't treat what we don't recognize. Um, so before we get started, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So thank you very much for the invitation to participate today in, in the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, my name is Alan Walkie. I'm an associate professor of medicine at Boston University, where I'm a pulmonologist and an intensivist. Um, I'm a critical care health services researcher and also the director of the Evans Center of Implementation and Improvement Sciences here in the Department of Medicine at Boston University. Um, I was part of the evidence synthesis working group for low tidal volume ventilation for the ATS and European Society of Intensive Care Medicine and Society of Critical Care Medicine Clinical Practice Guidelines for Mechanical Ventilation in Adult Patients with ARDS. That was co-chaired by Eddie Fan and Laurent Burchard. And again, I'm really happy to be speaking with you today. Great. Um, so in 2017, uh, we used low tidal volume ventilation. I was hoping you could give us maybe a brief background as to how we've come to this point, because uh, towards the end of the 20th century, um, it was high tidal volume ventilation. Sure, that's a that's a great question. I think um, we've come to this point through um, many decades of both preclinical and clinical research. Um, probably the main driver of how we came to this point was the concept uh, that ventilators might uh, be life-saving, but, al- but also could potentially cause harm. And um, so this concept of ventilator-associated lung injury, I think, is how we came to low tidal volume ventilation with the theory that reducing overstretch of the lung uh, during especially ARDS um, might be beneficial for patients. So, you know, the question is, how do we define low tidal volume ventilation now as well? Um, And we had some discussions about this when we were writing the guidelines for mechanical ventilation in ARDS. Um, For example, should we just be talking about low tidal volume ventilation, or should we also be talking about uh, pressure limitation? These two things go together, of course, but... We, on a ventilator, we can only primar- primarily target either volume or pressure uh, and let the other vary. Uh, also, further confusing matters somewhat when we talk about low tidal volume ventilation in, in air quotes uh, around those terms is that each trial that's investigated lower tidal volume uh, has had different tidal volume goals, different pressure goals, and use of different anthropomorphic measurements to normalize tidal volumes to body size, or uh, more importantly, to lung size. And that's an important distinction. So uh, theoretically, 
uh, as I alluded to earlier, low tidal volume ventilation would be defined as an approach to mechanical ve ventilation designed to minimize overstretch injury to the lung by limiting tidal volumes. But unfortunately, we don't currently have a means to measure the tidal volume that minimizes overstretch injury in each of our individual patients. Um, and tidal volumes approaching zero may cause harm, as we've seen in trials of high-frequency oscillation. Um, there's even evidence of overstretch injury occurring among patients ventilated at what we consider low tidal volumes uh, now. Uh, so all of those caveats aside, I think operationally we still need to define low tidal volumes. And I think most contemporary researchers have defined low tidal volumes as per the ARDSnet ARMA trial, and that is having a goal of six cc's per kilogram of predicted body weights with the leeway to go down to four if the plateau pressure is greater than 30, and to go up to eight if patients have severe dyspnea and uh, plateau pressure is less than 30. And these similar definitions have been used in large-scale epidemiological studies looking at practice patterns among patients with ARDA, ARDS as well. Great. Um, and so if we take a hypothetical patient who came in uh, perhaps uh, the ideal body weight of um, uh, 70 kilograms, um, you would set the tidal volume probably of uh, 420 uh, moles. Uh, what would your what, what what would you be thinking about as you setting uh, the ventilator uh, settings? Uh, you, you've mentioned um, the plateau pressures. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about what a junior clinician should be thinking of? Sure. I think one of the most important things is to think about that when a ventilator setting is chosen, that ventilator setting is not written in stone forever and is not a guaranteed setting. And so what I mean by that is um, just because we've set a tidal volume on a ventilator, say 420, that doesn't mean that's a tidal volume a patient's going to get. Um, patients' uh, respiratory efforts can alter tidal volumes. Uh, breath stacking and ventilator dyssynchrony can alter tidal volume. So I think for all clinicians, it's not uh, what I call set it and forget it. That's not what we should be doing. We should really be repeatedly monitoring patients for uh, the volumes that they're actually getting, the pressures that they're generating, how do they look, um, are they synchronous with the ventilator, do they look dyspneic and uncomfortable, um, and that these... Um, that these, uh, this is repeatedly monitored, monitored throughout a patient's course. And then what uh, common mistakes or uh, pitfalls have you seen uh, junior clinicians make uh, when managing uh, patients with ARDS and a low tidal volume uh, ventilation setting? Yeah, I think um, so that, that first pitfall of, you know, I've, uh, I've set this tidal volume, so this must be what's happening with the patient. Um, the, another common pitfall is the um, lack of predicting the consequences of setting tidal volumes lower. So lower tidal volume ventilation will increase the PaCO2. It will cause lower ventilation. Um, and it will also often decrease the PaO2 and cause um, a, a slight, um, a, an increase in hypoxemia. And so I think being ready and to anticipate those two changes uh, when tidal volume is being reduced, that respiratory rate will likely need to be increased to match minifentilation um, and likely 
might will need to be increased to um, account for the decrease in, in oxygenation that, that will be happening. So uh, the lack of anticipating um, the, the inevitable results of lowering tidal volumes. And then which two studies over the last uh, five to 10 years do you think have really advanced our understanding of uh, managing patients with ARDS with a low tidal volume? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, over the last 10 years, there really haven't been any uh, randomized control trials of lower tidal volumes um, for patients with, with ARDS. Um, I think the last major RCT was uh, around 2005 or six, so more than 10 years ago. Um, so that leaves us, I think, with observational studies. And there's been a number of observational studies that have helped inform concepts about delivery of tidal volume during critical illness. Um, some, significant, some significant ones over the last five years include Ari Serpanito's JAMA meta-analysis that suggested that the benefits of a low tidal volume approach may extend outside of ARDS and may include most patients who are mechanically ventilated for critical illness, um, similar studies in, um, among patients undergoing anesthesia during surgery um, also suggest that lower tidal volume benefit may extend outside of ARDS. Um, another study that um, I think was significant was Marcelo Amato's recent New England Journal of Medicine study, also observational from 2016 suggesting that the benefits of low tidal volume may be exerted mostly through the lowering of driving pressure of the lungs, so plateau minus P. And that is um, looking at the concept of tidal volume as, you know, as we had discussed before, what is the definition of low tidal volume? We had discussed tidal volume sort of normalized to lung size that's determined by essentially your height and your sex, so predicted body weight. But here in Amato's New England Journal study, they're normalizing tidal volume to what they think is, you know, what's lung compliance, the functional part of the lung. So extending this normalized tidal volume concept even further. And I think one more important study, um, you know, there's been many, of course, but over the, the past five years, um, another one that I think is really significant is Dale Needham's observational studies that showed really a dose-dependent association between the use of lower tidal volume ventilation and improved outcomes among patients with ARDS. And I think these studies really importantly showed that in the real-world setting and uh, outside of randomized controlled trials, when patients are getting lower tidal volumes, they are also doing better. Um, and it's, I think, important to show this translation from tightly controlled trials and something that might benefit um, patients, so, so that's show efficacy to showing effectiveness in a real-world setting that's a lot more messy than a randomized trial. And then, Alan, you recently uh, published an article in Annals looking at uh, low tidal volume versus non-volume limited strategies for patients with ARDS. I was wondering if you'd be able to share some of those findings uh, with our listeners. Sure. So, I, I think um, you may be referring to the um, meta-analysis of uh, low tidal volume ventilation. That's right. Um, so, yeah, so that in that meta-analysis, um, we, we had performed that meta-analysis as the evidence synthesis uh, to prepare for the guidelines for mechanical ventilation and ARDS. So this was sort of the first um, 
evidence synthesis stage. And um, we uh, performed a systematic review of all, uh, we, we limited to randomized trials of studies investigating low tidal volume ventilation strategies. And we uh, looked at the effect of low tidal volume ventilation on 28-day uh, mortality, incidence of organ failure, ventilator-free days, marrow trauma, oxygenation, and ventilation uh, measures. Um, you know, one difficulty in performing this meta-analysis is that there are a number of studies that sort of co-randomize patients to get strategies of low tidal volume and high PEEP uh, versus not low tidal volume and not high PEEP. So there's this mixing of uh, the potential effects of high PEEP with tidal volume in some of these studies. So we stratified our analysis to um, look at studies that did not have this mixing of low tidal volume and high PEEP versus studies that um, did also have this mixing. And, you know, when we looked at all the trials together, um, the ones that also used high PEEP with the low tidal volume um, co-interventions, we found, I think, uh, nine trials with over uh, 1,500 patients and a relative risk of 0.8 um, with a confidence interval that excluded one showing um, likely benefit of using low tidal volume ventilation. And what we, we also did a meta-regression analysis, so that's looking at um, uh, the spread of tidal volumes between the intervention group and the control group in each trial and whether that difference in tidal volumes within each trial was associated with the effects in the trials, and we did find a significant association between a larger difference in tidal volumes between the control group and the intervention group with lower tidal volumes and um, a larger effect size. So overall, we found a, a trend towards lower mortality with lower tidal volume ventilation in our primary analysis, and, um, you know, and this significant relationship between the degree of tidal volume reduction and the mortality effects. So we thought those re results suggested that lower tidal volume ventilation improves mortality among critically ill patients with ARDS. That's our conclusion. Great. And then uh, there's a recent article that came out in JAMA looking at uh, recruitment maneuvers, um, uh, and it suggested that patients who uh, received recruitment maneuvers uh, with a low tidal volume ventilation actually had a worse mortality. Um, I was uh, wondering if you could comment on that, or did, do you routinely perform recruitment maneuvers, or do you advise your fellows to uh, hold off on doing them? Yeah, so that's that's a great study to bring up because I think discussions of low tidal volume ventilation sort of are always linked into these discussions of well, also how do we set PEEP? I think you're referring to the the trial where it was a combined recruitment maneuver with a compliance based PEEP setting. So it, That's right. they, they reduced, they performed a recruitment maneuver and then performed a, um, uh, they set PEEP based on um, a decremental, they, they decreased PEEP until they found the best compliance and set it and set it there. And they compared that to patients who had PEEP set by the ARDSnet PEEP FIO2 table, the lower, the lower one. And, and right, they found um, a higher mortality when PEEP was set with this recruitment maneuver and uh, compliance-based PEEP setting versus just using the PEEP FIO2 table. So, yeah, so I hadn't 
uh, routinely used um, recruitment maneuvers before this trial and um, probably won't after this trial. Uh, I think this, these questions are, you know, really get to, I think, um, that in the past 20 years, we've had this discovery, I think going back to the first question, um, that preventing ventilator-associated lung injury can help patients. And so we're always looking for ways to prevent ventilator-associated lung injury more or you know, further. Um, and we've, um, you know, found that lower tidal volumes seem to do it, reducing excess lung stretch, um, re reducing transpulmonary pressures. But PEEP is, is a tougher nut to crack because uh, when we lower tidal volumes, we almost always lower transpulmonary pressures. But when we increase PEEP, we um, often increase transpulmonary pressures. And so it's a, PEEP is much more of a double-edged sword. And, and how to set PEEP um, is probably going to be much more of a personalized medicine, individualized patient approach uh, than tidal volumes, which seem to be applicable to almost all patients, you know, with, with ARDS. So you mentioned the challenges of, uh, of titrating PEEP. What, what other controversies uh, have you noted in uh, managing patients with the ARDS? Yeah, so I think the controversies that I've, that I consider, they're probably not controversies, but really challenges, big challenges. And I think the biggest challenge that we've had is just, you know, how do we get low tidal volumes to happen for our patients? How do we make them happen? Because there's been now innumerable studies that show a gross underuse of low tidal volume ventilation in patients with ARDS. So we really need to start to apply um, some more robust um, implementation science-based approaches to translate these discoveries we've had from randomized trials into the real world to uh, help apply them to our patients. Because when we have these uh, randomized trial-based discoveries, they don't do us any good if we don't use them. So, you know, one potential uh, simple fix that we've uh, started using is um, changing the default tidal volumes from, you know, st the standard of 500 cc's per kilogram that almost everyone on a ventilator gets initially if when they come into the hospital. Um, that yields more than six cc's per kilogram for almost everybody, uh, uh, unless, unless you're very tall. And to change these default settings to um, the population average for heights for men and women. So men get 450 and women get 350 to start, and then you can sort of adjust for there. But that Doing that doesn't require this uh, recognition, oh, goodness, the patient has ARDS. What's their tidal volume? Oh, it's 500. Let's change it. Those are three steps um, that can be eliminated with more uh, default-based settings. There's probably lots of other ways to get people to start using uh, low tidal volume ventilation. That's just one, one way. Uh, I think another controversy is what do we do with spontaneous respiratory effort? Um, you know, our patients who generate large tidal volumes during spontaneous respiration, for example, on non-invasive ventilation, are they causing themselves harm? How do we limit that? Uh, or do we limit that? Those are major questions, I think, that are unanswered. Uh, in addition to what about large respiratory efforts that result in 
high transpulmonary pressures during other ventilator modes that people use, such as airway pressure release ventilation. Um, what, what do we do with that? And, and is that helpful or is it harmful? So there's, I think, still a lot to learn about how we ventilate patients. And then uh, which diagnostic or therapeutic advances in ARDS uh, do you foresee in the next uh, three to five years? Yeah, I think as I um, had discussed a little bit earlier that we've made all these gains through harm reduction and also through quality improvement efforts in the ICU. So uh, having the ventilator cause less harm so it can cause more help is really the strategy that we've been using, I think, to improve patients' outcomes. Um, but, you know, how much more we can do to reduce ventilator-associated lung injury, it's not clear. Um, tr as you had alluded to, trials of setting PEEP differently haven't really borne out the way that trials of lowering tidal volume have. Um, you know, is lower tidal lowering tidal volume further through extracorporeal carbon dioxide removal or things like that going to be helpful for patients? That, that's not clear either. Um, and we'll see some more trials uh, emerging, results of trials emerging, limiting spontaneous respiratory efforts, for example, with the ROSE trial from PEDAL where patients are being randomized to um, uh, neuromuscular blockade with ARDS. But I think the hope is that more personalized approaches will emerge where we'll have um, not necessarily treatments that work for almost all patients with a disease category, but recognizing distinct phenotypes of disease, distinct characteristics that predict a response to a specific treatment strategy. So this is you know, sometimes called a theragnostic approach that we have some sort of test or challenge that we can do for a patient that then tells us whether or not a patient, an individual patient, will likely respond to a treatment or not. So whether these are um, groups of biomarkers that show a certain phenotype more likely to respond to a different type of treatment strategy or physiological um, markers, you know, a, a simple one is with PEEP, often an increase in oxygenation when you increase the PEEP may predict a better response to, to PEEP than um, patients who don't increase their oxygenation when you increase their PEEP are probably not going to have a benefit from PEEP. And so more strategies that are sort of challenges we can give to patients to predict whether they'll respond to a specific therapy. And then one question that we sometimes get asked is, uh, that should we be putting um, esophageal balloons to uh, measure pleural pressures? Uh, I was wondering if you could comment on uh, esophageal pressure monitoring. Sure, I can comment a little bit. I think um, it's not something that we do in, in our institution, so I don't have a lot of personal experience doing so. I know in other institutions, they, they are facile with it. Um, it may be um, there's some skill that goes to that, that needs to be learned if, if you're going to use it. I think um, there are uh, certainly um, sort of tricks of the trade of getting the right esophageal pressure measurement that is um, correlated with the pleural pressure, which is really what you're trying to measure when you measure esophageal pressure. Um, you know, uh, Danny Talmore's group has shown in their initial single-center trial a, a potential for outcome improvements by setting PEEP 
by uh, calculating transpulmonary pressure, and I think more studies are needed. You know, one to uh, replicate those findings, and also, you know, whether there's other ways we can estimate um, pleural pressures in addition to esophageal balloons. Great. And then uh, to finish off, um, if you were to impart uh, three polls to a f uh, the junior a faculty member or a fellow, uh, what would they be in terms of uh, critical care management of a patient with ARDS? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. Um, I think some of these I alluded to before. So, you know, for ARDS, we need to think about ARDS in patients with respiratory distress because we can't treat what we don't recognize. So, ARDS, as shown in um, Bellani's study in JAMA, the lung safe observational study, is grossly under-recognized. Also, I think it's just really important to spend time with your mechanically ventilated patients. I think often we see someone who is sedated, heavily sedated sometimes, but sedated on a ventilator, and um, we don't spend as much time with them as we do with patients who we're conversing with uh, on rounds. And I think it's really important to actually spend a lot of time with our mechanically ventilated patients. There's a lot to observe there. There's people in there. So if you want to be present with them, hold their hand, talk to them on rounds. Um, not only is it the, the humane thing to do, but I think it also allows ample time to observe the patient on the ventilator. How, how is this person interacting with this machine that you have attached to them? Because uh, there, there's a ton to learn there about uh, physiology and, and to help uh, titrate the appropriate ventilator treatments to, to the patient uh, to observe respiratory efforts, mechanics, ventilator synchrony. Uh, there's a lot of physiology there to learn. And, um, you know, it's just nice to be with your patients. And I think that concept of spending time with ventilated patients, um, being present with them and returning to them to look for change and make sure the treatments that you've set with this ventilator therapy is giving the same effects later as it was initially. Um, I think another thing that I often uh, discuss with the house staff and, and residents and fellows is that, you know, in the ICU, we have lots of hypotheses about what's happening with patients uh, from a pathophysiology perspective. And so almost every treatment change in the ICU is a hypothesis test. And so like the ventilator change, you need to stick around to see the results and follow up the results. So when you make a change in the ventilator, see if this hypothesis you had about why you're making the changes confirmed with the result of what the patient's doing. And I think finally, there's a lot to be learned from the um, other staff in the ICU. Um, so talk to the non-physician staff in the ICU, the, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the physical therapists, um, the speech and language pathologists, all of the folks that help us care for patients in the ICU have, have a ton to teach, and um, we can learn a lot from um, them as well. Well, those are pretty helpful, and I really appreciate your insights. A big thank you to Dr. Alan Walkey, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.